released book, uh, Challenging U.S. Human Rights Violations Since 9-1-1. First, I'd like to tell you that I'm a long-term activist in the Bay Area and one of the founders of the Green Party locally. Um, I'm going to ask Anne now to talk about herself and uh, tell us who you are, Anne, and about this new book. Well, I think a lot of people know some things about me. I'm executive director of Micklejohn Civil Liberties Institute, and our new book is called Challenging U.S. Human Rights Violations Since 9-1-1. But the reason that I was able to bring this book together with all the interns who work at Micklejohn is sort of a long history. I don't want to go all the way back, but a lot of people don't realize today there once was something called the Ohio Un-American Activities Commission. And I... It took me eight years, but I represented a woman who refused to answer their questions about her political uh, affiliations and beliefs. And I think it's important to know that at that time, which was, I guess, 50 years ago, you could actually win a case in the U.S. Supreme Court, in this case, eight to nothing, saying that somebody didn't have to tell the government, in this case, the state of Ohio, what their politics are. And, of course, that was long before we had all these gadgets that they attach to your library book or to your uh, credit card or whatever so that the government can find out automatically. But also, maybe people know, maybe they don't, I think it's important to be active in your PTA or what's now the PTSA. And I was president of the PTA at Whittier School. And the other thing I did that I think sort of fits in with what we're talking about in this challenging book is that I worked on the Peace and Justice Commission in Berkeley so that I was part of the city government, and I learned a great deal in that connection. And I think all of that is in the challenging book. So that brings us to what is law in our lives, what part of of our lives is law, what part of our lives is government. I think that's a very important question. A lot of people today say they are angry at the government. They're angry at the city, county, state, and federal governments, and that's how they what they think the government consists of. And I really don't think that that's going to save us from the catastrophes that Bush and company have in store or that Walmart and the big corporations have in store. I think we have to see that law and government are part of our daily lives and that we have a right and a duty and actually a possibility of making a difference in the law and the government. And that's partly why I mentioned the Peace and Justice Commission. For example, last night in its meeting, the Peace and Justice Commission supported a proposal by Congresswoman Barbara Lee, our local congresswoman, who convinced the House Foreign Relations Committee and the, first she convinced the Subcommittee on Africa and, uh, and Racism, or the Uh, I'm sorry, Africa and and human rights. She convinced them that we should not be doing what we're doing in Haiti. And then she convinced the House. And then in the conference committee, she convinced the House and Senate conference committee to leave in the appropriations bill for 2006 a prohibition of any U.S. money going for military actions in Haiti. Wow. And she also, the so the commission last night supported her action, and they also supported what she's doing to call for a congressional committee to investigate what we're doing in Haiti. Now, Barbara Lee is a person like us. She's not on some mountain or distant person. And I think that it's important to see her, and she's an example of good government, as part of our lives. 
And then she did an interesting thing the other day. She had a whole bunch of formal meetings she had to go to where she made presentations. She also sent an email to a bunch of people saying, come and have brunch with me. So I went and had brunch with her at one of the local restaurants. And there were a bunch of us who could just sit down next to her as a human being to a human being and say what's on our minds. And I think that's the optimum kind of government. Well, that's uh, that sounds pretty good. And uh, how does this fit in with the book? Where does uh, where does this uh, fit in with the challenges to human rights? Well, what really happened is that after nine one one, Bush and his cronies and Cheney and Rove and all of them decided they could do what they'd long wanted to do. And my sort of image of it is that there was a drawer in Washington in which all of the I would call reactionary and conservative people put what they wanted to do to change the law. And the minute that the 911 happened, they took all of the stuff in this drawer and put it into something they called the Patriot Act. It wasn't something that just came up. It was something they developed over time. Well, if they can develop it over time, I would say we can too. And we need to begin a drawer where we make a list of what we really believe in. And one of the things we believe in is what's in this book. In other words, we collected at Micklejohn Civil Liberties Institute 180 reports of different kinds of violations of law by the U.S. government since 911. One example would be, for example, a man who came from Pakistan, came to the U.S., married a U.S. citizen, had a couple of citizen children, and applied for political asylum. He said if he went back to Pakistan, he would be attacked. And the U.S. government never quite got around to having a hearing on that for five years. After 9-1-1, they then had a, arrested him for deportation. And they held him in jail on the deportation charge so he couldn't even attend his own political asylum hearing. And finally they deported him. And 30 days after they deported him, they decided to grant him political asylum. The only problem was that he'd been murdered in Pakistan two weeks before. That's the first of 180 reports in this challenging book. And so what the book does is to go from the right to not to be killed or tortured, the right to free speech, the right to join a union, the right to go to the library and not have somebody know what book you took out, all of these rights and the duties of the government. And we put them in one book, and then at the back we put the actual laws that are being violated. Well, you know, Anne... You and I have discussed your book before, and in reading it, it really comes to my mind, and it has in discussion with other people as well, that most people don't know the law. We don't know what our law is doing for us or where we need to grab onto it. And so many of the um, violations of the laws that have taken place since 911 have have gone by the wayside. Nobody's watched. Nobody's uh, stopped and said, no, that's against the law. Well, it isn't true that nobody has. I think very few people have, and it hasn't been effective, and that's why putting it in one book helps. And I think it is important to know what the law is. So let me just tell you what I call a, a secret or whatever else you want to call it. And that is, in the first place, that it is the duty of the government to promote the general welfare and the general welfare includes arab americans it includes people who are called muslims or of any religion it includes people from any part of the world and there's nothing in the general welfare clause of the constitution that says it only applies to citizens after all it was written by people who had just 
created a revolution, and that is part of the Constitution. Another thing people don't quite realize is that Article 6, Clause 2 of the Constitution says, a treaty is the supreme law of the land, and any treaties we adopt hereafter will be the supreme law of the land. So it isn't just that some person can say, I believe in the U.S. Constitution, but I hate the U.N., or the U.N. has no business. The fact of the matter is that the U.N., became part of the governance system of the United States when the U.S. helped write the U.N. Charter, when the president signed it, President Truman signed the U.N. Charter, and then the Senate debated it and ratified it. So the U.N. Charter is actually a treaty, and it's part of the supreme law of the land. So what it says in the U.N. Charter applies to George Bush, Governor Schwarzenegger, the County Board of Supervisors, the City Council, the Board of Education, and so forth. And in the U.N. Charter, you will find amazing things. A lot of people don't know. Article 2.4 says, No nation shall use force or threat of force. Ah, so there's my question. Where is the law of the United States and of the U.N. being broken in Haiti? In Haiti. Well, in Haiti, we are certainly using force or threat of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any nation because we have helped send troops to Haiti to destroy the political system there, and that violates Article 2.4. And last night, the the Commission on Peace and Justice of the city of Berkeley supported a resolution which Barbara Lee, our congresswoman, got through Congress which says that no money shall be appropriated in 2006 budget for military service or military action in Haiti. It's a tremendous victory by her, and if Bush does not veto that bill, then no you no U.S. money can go to Haiti. And she also proposed, and the commission last night commended her for this, that there should be a committee of Congress to investigate U.S. actions in Haiti. And that's part of the law, that somebody sitting in the White House or the Department of Defense or the Department of State cannot just snap their fingers and say, this is what the United States is going to do. Well, how does that fit in with Election Day today? And, I mean, um, here we're talking about U.S. Uh, law and U.S. rights. We're talking about U.N. law, U.N. rights. How does that look on Election Day? Well, here we have a special election called by a governor or a governator who has, as far as I know, never read the U.S. Constitution. I'm sure he's never read the U.N. Charter or thought about it. And he's put on the ballot a series of proposals that violate, in my opinion, I'm giving my views on the election procedure, that violate fundamental parts of the U.S. Bill of Rights and of the U.N. Charter and of three treaties we've ratified. Uh, the Proposition uh, 75 tries to limit the power of labor unions to be active. And in the U.N. Charter, it, it says... There shall be universal respect for and observance of fundamental human rights and freedoms for all without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion. A very broad coverage. And then in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which we also ratified, it's a treaty, and it is more important because it's a treaty, more important than WTO, which everybody's heard about, but it hasn't been mentioned often. And the International Covenant says in Article 22 that labor unions have a right to exist and to function. And Schwarzenegger, that's just one example, is trying to abolish that. 
The, the whole question of teachers and teachers being properly paid is critical. The right of a teacher to get a job and hold that job. And that's also in the election today. So I think people in California, in a sense, are lucky, if you want to put it that way, that we can directly participate in saving the Constitution and the UN Charter and the human rights we believe in if we go out and vote. And I understand that nothing's perfect, and I understand that if Schwarzenegger loses on all of his propositions and if 79 and 80 win, which is my personal hope, that is not going to change everything in California or make everything perfect, but it will keep us from moving backward. And backward we have been moving. Uh, what about New Orleans? What about uh, Katrina and uh, the effects of Rita? Are they part of this uh this law that we're talking they absolutely are and i think it's critical again that we see there's a connection between an event in this case a natural catastrophe and the law and the government in fact Micklejohn civil liberties institute has been working with the people's institute of new orleans which is an interracial organization that had its office flooded out but they've existed for many years in new orleans and they have an office here in the bay area and we have worked together to study what has happened, what the U.S. government officials and agencies have and have not done as to Katrina. And we ended up with a list of 17 violations of basic laws by the U.S. government, from the behavior of FEMA to the National Guard to the local police to the landlords now who are evicting tenants because they're not paying their rent when the tenants can't live in the housing. And so what we did, and this is what I hope everyone will start doing, to get a copy of the U.N. Charter, just just read it. It doesn't take that long. Get a copy of these treaties that we've ratified. You can get them from Micklejohn. They're on our webpage, www.mcli.org. And read them, and you will begin to see that many of the things we think need to be done are not being done. And they can be done, and the law requires them. So as to Katrina... It's interesting. Uh, the, as you know, the people who have been affected primarily are African American or Hispanic or native Indian Creole residents and especially people who are poor. So one of the lawyers there, Bill Quigley, was smart enough. I think he was one of the people who told the UN about this. And so the United Nations sent in a special rapporteur on extreme poverty. They actually have a person with that function. And that person, I'm sure, when they got that job, never expected to go to part of the United States to talk about extreme poverty. But that person then, that man, went to New Orleans and spent several days there last week. And he will make a report to the General Assembly of the United Nations and to the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights because he found extreme poverty among the people who were displaced and the effort to displace them permanently in by the powers that be in that area, both the local landlords, the employer, prospective employers, and by people in the political system. So that there is a very good example of a direct relationship between an event that occurs, people whose rights are violated, they're letting the UN know, and the UN then hiring or retaining someone to take an interest in this problem well and you know i i know in the news it is constant certainly on kpfa news and in other news uh, outlets that we've been talking constantly about the violation of u.s law concerning torture we we are now uh, finding out about uh, secret black 
sites in uh, the former Soviet area. Can you tell me about how this book is addressing that? And, you know, what what can we do? I think that's the question. I think that's right. Well, in the first place, the book describes 180 examples of human rights violations. And it also says exactly what laws are being violated. The habeas corpus provision of the United States Constitution that no one can be held the way they're being held at Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib without being told why they're being held and bring, being brought before a magistrate. And the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, the right to freedom of religion and so forth. But also the UN Charter, as I was mentioning, and the UN the three treaties we've ratified, and it takes a minute to spell them out. One of them is the one you're talking about, the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. The U.S. agreed to that treaty in 1994. We also ratified a treaty called the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, 1994. Very few people in the NAACP or in any of the other organizations even know that that treaty was ratified. And the third one I mentioned before, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And all of these treaties set out rights that are being violated since 9-1-1. They're reported in the book. And then Micklejohn did something based on what we were talking about before, that government is part of ordinary life. Micklejohn Institute did not send this book to the State Department and did not send this book to the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights because we're just a small uh, think tank, you might say, that talks about human rights and peace law. We went to the Commission on Peace and Justice and we went to the City Council and we said, we think it would be a good idea if the city of Berkeley, if the City Council of Berkeley submitted this report to the State Department and to the UN committees. And the City Council agreed unanimously. And so this book then is a report prepared by law school interns and Micklejohn Civil Liberties Institute and presented to government authorities by the City Council of Berkeley and therefore given a considerable amount of importance because every city doesn't just file a report. Well, uh, maybe I should tell you what came as a result of that. Okay. Maybe that's what you were going to ask yes. me. Yes. It's really interesting. I don't think a lot of people know the U.N. is really changing as time goes by. They are getting more and more organs of the U.N. are furious at the U.S. behavior, the behavior of the current administration that ignores the U.N. or pretends it doesn't exist. So we're sitting in our office in Berkeley, sort of minding our own business or working hard, and we get an email from Geneva on August the 3rd from the the person in charge of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights Enforcement. It's called the Human Rights Committee. And they said, would you please send us information on three issues? One is, what is the U.S. government doing under the Patriot Act that has implications for human rights violations? And two, what is the U.S. government doing in terms of detaining people? And three, how are they treating the people they are detaining? And they said, we want you to give us a response by August the 29th because your government, the United States government, was supposed to issue a report to us in the year 1998. And they didn't send us a report as they had promised to do when they ratified the treaty. And they were supposed to send us another report in 2003, every five years. And they didn't do that either. And we've told them we expect that them to file these reports, and they haven't done it. So now we're turning to non-governmental organizations. So by August 29th, would you please send us specific information on these issues? 
And you did. And we did. We went through the 180 reports, and we found 71 of them covered by implications of human rights violations under the Patriot Act or descriptions of detentions in Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo and the treatment of prisoners that had been arrested all over the United States and in other places by the U.S. since 9-1-1. And they thanked us for this material. And then what we did, and any NGO could do it, we asked Judge Claudia Morcom of Detroit to go to Geneva to present this report to the U.N. Human Rights Committee on October 17th. And I don't know if you've heard of Claudia Morcom, but you would have if you were from Detroit. She's an African-American woman with great guts. And she was a lawyer, and in 1965, she took on the Mississippi white supremacy outfit. She went to Mississippi for the National Lawyers Guild and headed up the work of Mississippi in Mississippi for the Guild for two years. Later, she became a judge. And so she agreed to go to Geneva and to present to the committee in person the reports we had on violations of human rights up to August 29th. Well, of course, September, I think, was when the uh, Katrina happened. So Mickeljohn said to the committee by email, there are terrible problems in Katrina, and Judge Morcom would like to discuss them. And the committee emailed back, no, you can't talk about Katrina. We are only talking about these three things. Judge Morcom is a very good speaker and presenter. And so she talked about the book and the violations by the U.S. government that are in the book. And in passing, she mentioned Katrina. And after the formal meeting was over, several members of the committee wanted to know more about Katrina. And so, as a result, she was asked to come back on October 24th and talk about the specific violations of the law, both U.S. law and U.N. law, when the U.S. failed to act before the terrible things happened, when they knew it was going to happen, and when they then sent in soldiers to treat the ordinary citizens, the people, not you know, as if they were guilty of some crime and treated them in a way that is inexplicable or unacceptable. And so she talked about this, and they were very concerned by this. And then a curious thing happened. The U.S. government decided to file its second and third reports that were due in 1998 and in 2003. Did you get a chance to look at those reports? Well, we that took two days before they got on the web so that you could see them. Yes, it's about 250 pages long. Wow. And they are shocking. Ooh. What they're saying is what we're doing in Abu, among other things, they say, what we're doing in Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo is none of your business. They, really? That's what they said. And they said the same thing to the Committee Against Torture. They uh, They said... The charge is that there are things going on at Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo and at other uh, locations in the world that are where there's a prison or a facility that the U.S. has rented, if you want to call it that, for enemy combatants. It's none of your business. All that you can talk about is what's happening in the 50 states of the United States. Well, maybe you can talk about the Indian reservations. Perhaps you can talk about Puerto Rico, but you cannot discuss or make us discuss or what is happening in other areas. In that, the black sites in uh, Cuba. In, that's correct. Uh-huh. And anyone who knows anything knows that the day that Fidel Castro sets foot on Guantanamo, there will be trouble because the mm-hmm. U.S. will say you have no right here. That piece of property at this point is U.S. property. And to say that the U.S. government doesn't have to report on it under the Convention Against Torture is absurd. Uh-huh. 
And so I think that one of the things that's happened to me, and I'm very grateful for living in Berkeley for this, is that Frank Newman, who used to teach at Bolt Hall and then became a member of the California Supreme Court, said there was something called the mobilization of shame. That if you want to know what the UN does, they help shame governments through media coverage of hearings in which reports are given. In other words, you make a report, you have a discussion about it, it goes in the media or NGOs come back and report, and a government is shamed into doing what is right. Has the U.S. ever been shamed by the U.N.? Yes. I think there is no question that the U.S., the reports that we are fi- that we are reading now, the second report, shows some indication they are aware that there are problems. They don't like it, and they don't want to admit it, but there is some understanding that there is such a thing as the U.N. After all, the U.S. representative to the meeting of the heads of government, 150 heads of government, Bolton, tried to propose a whole series of changes in the U.N. charter mm-hmm. and in U.N. operations, and he couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. He had the audacity, well, I don't think audacity is the right word. Anyway, the United States government actually proposed that we take out of the U.N. charter the section that says that no nation shall use force or threat of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any nation. They tried to delete that from the U.N. Charter, mm-hmm. and, of course, they failed. Certainly, the U- United Nations is the site of a fierce battle, a fierce battle uh, that takes place worldwide. Well, and I have good news, because today we got an email from the U.N. Human Rights Committee. So anybody who's got a pencil and has got a little time and gives a great deal of care about human rights in March... The U.S. report on human rights is coming before the Human Rights Committee at its meeting in Geneva. Okay. And anyone who wants more specific information can call us, 510-848-0599. Well, I'm going to interject here that uh, Mickeljohn is having a 40th anniversary celebration. It's going to be a party taking place this Saturday, 2 o'clock, at 1419 Grant Street, and it is really to come, folks. Come and enjoy uh, this discussion. I think Anne and Micklejohn have done so much um, for our understanding and then for our action. I think that's the point. We've got to move uh, uh, along with this. We've got to make sure that uh, this compilation of information, the book, doesn't sit there, but that we use it and that we make uh, the 40 years of Micklejohn into a uh, harbinger for what's next. Right, and you can get a copy of the challenging book at the party, and we're going to have some music, and we're going to be talking. We've had 400 interns in the past 40 years. A bunch of them will be there. And I think the idea is that, as Jennifer Stone often says, if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. And I think that we're trying in that sense to go as easy as we can, which in this case means as fast and furiously as we can. Absolutely. And uh, gosh, I want to thank KPFA for this time and also Jennifer Stone. It's really been important to get this word out. And uh, Jennifer will be with us again next week as well as on Thursday morning at 820 on the morning show. Well, great. And, uh, okay, well, Anne, I just want, 
I, you know, I just want to say that this book is really, really important, and it should make people very, very, very angry. Well, I should just say, John Conyers thinks it's a great book. So does Noam Chomsky. So does Howard Zinn. So if you, if you think their advice or their opinion is of value, then you ought to get this book. Is John Conyers coming out soon? Yes, February 23rd. We're having a big event at Berkeley Middle School, uh, at King Middle School, with John Conyers. Far out. Who else is coming? Uh, Leonard Wineglass. Barbara Lee? Barbara Lee is invited, and she's coming if she can. And also, we're hoping that Ron Dellums will be able to chair. Wonderful. It sounds great, Anne. Thank you. And thank you, everyone. West African Dance Company presents an exciting evening of mysticism, love, stilt dancers, musicians, acrobats, singers, and dramatists. Celebrate Africa's epic and folklore culture on Saturday, November 12th, 8 p.m. at the Calvin Simmons Theater, located at number 10 10th Street in downtown Oakland. This event benefits the preservation of West African culture. For more information, call 510-326-1968 or visit them at urbanevents.com. And you're listening.